most advertisers are just addicted to the large quantities, large volumes that are now generated by the audience networks, the sites outside of the main properties. Similarly on, on YouTube, the very simple solution is to eliminate GVP, Google Video Partners, and keep your ads on YouTube because those actually conform to the definition of TrueView. And in that case, you don't need any verification partners because humans watch YouTube. They spend hours and hours watching. And so when you have the ads run before they watch uh, the video, you're getting what you actually paid for, right? So I think a lot of these solutions are free to the advertiser. Like I said uh, earlier, use an inclusion list, build your own. I'm Eric Fulweiler, and this is Scratch, bringing you marketing lessons from the leading brands and brains, rewriting the rulebook from scratch for the world of today. Welcome to Scratch, Rivals podcast on challenger marketing, where we spend some time talking to the thinkers and doers in the world of marketing, and in particular, some of the voices and brands challenging the status quo and doing things differently. Today, I am so excited because we have absolutely one of the best voices, I think, in the marketing and advertising world who is going out there challenging the status quo, Dr. Augustine Fu. Um, he is like kind of the sole reason I log on to LinkedIn some days, and I'm so excited for him to be here with us today to talk about um, some of the really interesting things that we've seen going on lately um, in kind of the world of, of media buying, advertising, and inventory. Um, so just you know, some, it's an, an introduction to Dr. Fu, who has had a really illustrious and impressive career. Um, you know, way back when he started and completed his PhD at MIT in material science and engineering, that 23, um, began his career at McKinsey, um, where he served as SVP of digital strategy and lead at McCann and MRM World, Worldwide. He's gone on to do a lot of things from leading uh, as the chief group digital officer at Omnicom Healthcare Consultancy, as well as teaching digital strategy and integrated marketing at Rutgers, as well as NYU's School of Continuing and Professional Studies. Um, beyond this, he's been an investigator who's assisted governments and regulatory bodies as a consultant um, who's helped clients strengthen cybersecurity, deal with fraud, mitigate threats and risks, um, including you know one of the, the big threats that we see in, in our space, the flow of advertising dollars to criminal organizations. Um, and really help marketers kind of improve the effectiveness of their campaigns overall. Um, he's been at the front lines because he of digital marketing across this career for nearly three decades. Uh, nearly three decades, he's documented um, and kind of studied all the things that we see going on and kind of the nexus of cybercrime and ad fraud. Um, and again, like I say, is absolutely one of my favorite voices in the industry. I think keeping us honest and alerting us to some of the things that we don't necessarily think about on a day-to-day -day basis uh, in marketing. Dr. Fu, thank you so much for being with us here today. So excited to talk to you. Thank you, Jenna. It's great to be on your show. Um, I think we're going to cover off on a lot of uh, interesting topics, especially the stuff that's been happening in the last two months or so. So thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm uh, excited to get into it and uh, throw some punches, as I like to say, throw, throw, some, throw some hands, uh, as I like to say. Um, we usually start out with, like I say, a nice, easy kind of icebreaker just to get to know um, some folks. Um, so, you know, what's a one, I guess, like brand, um, you know, a challenger brand or really kind of, you know, anybody in the space of marketing right now that you are really passionate about, um, you know, following and, and kind of why? I, I think there's a few. Um, I think we're going to talk about Analytics, uh, the company that broke the news and, and had a 200 page research report with, uh, you know, code snippets and screenshots. So, they're definitely a challenger brand uh, compared to a lot of the uh, legacy fraud verification companies that have been around for a long time. 
Um, a lot of these problems you know, have been going on for a while, uh, but those legacy fraud verification companies have not surfaced them, right? So it took an outsider, you know, someone really independent of the industry uh, to do that. So, you know, we'll get into that uh, during this podcast. But also folks like Wayne uh, Blodwell, uh, Robert Webster, you know, these are in the independent uh, voices who are actually looking at the, the details of the data, right? Uh, I kind of contrast them to the bigger uh, media agencies that belong to the holding companies, right? The giant holding companies, you know, I, I think they're, they're doing a subpar job because of their revenue model, right? Uh, you know, they're so desperate to make money and please Wall Street every quarter that a lot of the checks and balances seem to go out the window. So I think it's really, uh, there's a need for independent voices, individual people uh, who are trying to do uh, the right thing. I'm also, um, you know, happy to work with companies like Search Discovery in Atlanta. They're an analytics-focused agency. And, you know, they love looking at analytics like I do. So, you know, when you actually look at the analytics, you can already tell something's wrong, right? You can kind of suspect that, you know, why is it like, you know, 100% bounce rates or one second time on site? So little things like that already point you to or give you clues that there's something suboptimal that needs to be improved. And another small agency, Camelot uh, Strategic Marketing in Dallas, um, I've been working with them for many years. And they are very conscientious when serving clients. So again, I would say the independent agencies uh, are doing a much better job. They're much more focused uh, on the details of programmatic media buying. And in doing so, they're better serving their clients. So I'm a big fan of uh, you know, those kind of uh, non-incumbent uh, smaller players. Yeah, I'm going to have to add Camelot to my list of follow companies on, on LinkedIn now. I guess I've been following Wayne you know, for a little while. Um, and yeah, analytics, I think, you know, the perfect segue into our, our main topic of discussion today, um, that absolutely blockbuster report that they released, um, again, was covered in the Wall Street Journal um, several weeks ago now. And some of the subsequent follow-ups, because boy, did analytics bring the receipts uh, on some of this when questioned from Google. So absolutely great. Um, so just a quick, you know, overview, and I think, you know, to give some background to some of our listeners who maybe haven't been, you know, following, you know, this, this as it unfolds as much as maybe we have. Um, but like I said, just, you know, background, um, you know, analytics has, you know, published a report that revealed, you know, that Google has been running a huge portion of essentially YouTube's, what, what had been designated YouTube TrueView as skippable in-stream ad, um, actually within kind of their third-party, you know, Google video partners, where it's been, you know, very difficult, if not impossible, um, you know, to skip the ad. Many of these placements have actually been unviewable, um, and that there really haven't been, you know, either controls for media buyers to remove that inventory from their buys, or frankly, just that, again, the inventory that's been served, you know, violates Google's own terms and is simply not what advertisers think they're buying. Um, so, yeah, um, like I say, would love just kind of your perspective, you know, overview on the situation. You know, again, maybe some of the things that were really interesting to you coming out of that analytics report, um, you know, just to give some color and background for our listeners. Uh, TrueView ads, in theory, are a really great format of ads. It's a unique format to, um, you know, offered by YouTube and Google. Uh, and it's because you can actually skip it. And the advertisers don't pay for all, all, the, all the ads that are skipped, right? They only pay when the ads are not skipped and the user voluntarily watches it. So that's a great idea. That's a great format. 
But unfortunately, despite those kind of definitions of what a real TrueView ad is, when the ads are running outside of YouTube, uh, most of those don't conform to those standards, right? So most people are familiar with the skip ad button, right? Because when you're watching something on YouTube, uh, if it's a pre-roll ad, you'll see the ad. And then within uh, the first, uh, after the first five seconds, you'll see the little black button on the lower right-hand corner, right? It says skip ad. So most people are familiar with that format. And that's what most advertisers thought they were buying. However, um, if the video partner network, right? So these are all the sites outside of YouTube that also run these types of ads. If you didn't turn those off in your media buy, a portion of your ads will end up running on sites outside of YouTube. And that's where the majority of the problems were, right? So I think a lot of people covered this as an on YouTube, off YouTube kind of thing. Uh, and that's kind of true because there was a correlation, right? Most of the stuff that ran on YouTube were fine. They were actually, they conformed to the definition of TrueView ads. Uh, but most of the stuff that ran outside of YouTube did not conform, right? So when the ads uh, are running on those sites and there's plenty of screenshots and code snippets in the analytics research, you can see some of the ads were running completely outside the page, right? Off page. So people couldn't see it. Right. Obviously, you can't see the skip button, so you can't skip it. Right. And it was uh, muted uh, and things like that. So you didn't even know it was running. And there's a term uh, outstream versus in-stream. So in-stream means the ad is running next to a YouTube video. Right. So uh, most of the ads run pre-roll. Right. So you have to watch the ad before you can see the YouTube video that you wanted to watch. Uh, some would roll mid mid roll uh, for longer videos. And then some in some cases, there's post roll. Uh, so th those are uh, what we call in-stream ads because they run next to content videos. Outstream ads are ads that just run by themselves, right? So a lot of the ads that were found running on these video partner sites and mobile apps were literally the ads by themselves uh, loading repeatedly, right? They were not running prior to a YouTube content video. So again, all of these um, mean that it doesn't conform to Google's own definition of what a TrueView ad should be. And uh, these were still sold as if they were TrueView, so they're kind of expensive. And advertisers believed that these were real views of the ad because, you know, in theory, people could skip them if they wanted to, and they only paid for the ones that uh, were not skipped, right? So you see how that misrepresentation of ads that did not conform to the definition, but yet were still sold as TrueView, that's where the problem comes in, right? So, you know, people are disputing, Google specifically is disputing the ratio of ads that ran on YouTube versus off YouTube. And of course, in some campaigns, right, that many of the ads ran on YouTube. For example, the ones where you turn off GVP, Google Video Partners, right? But if you forgot to do that, or you didn't realize you could do that, then a large portion of the ads would be running on the sites outside of Google, uh, outside of YouTube, and and not conform to the to the definition, right? So whatever the ratio is, um, the analytics research showed that there was a problem that Google maybe wasn't aware of, or you know was not properly reported. And the other key thing that came out is that the verification vendors that Google cited, Double Verify and Integral Ad Science. They didn't actually catch any of this stuff because they didn't actually measure any of this stuff, right? It really came out in the details that these vendors did not measure anything with a JavaScript tag 
They were simply given data by Google to perform calculations on and provide reporting. So what I think a lot of advertisers started to realize is, oh, well, that's you can't really call that independent third-party verification because they didn't verify anything, right? It's no better than Google grading their own homework and saying, oh, hey, look, everything was viewable, audible, and no fraud. That's been a big problem. And I think advertisers have uh, accepted for too long uh, Google and the other platforms grading their own homework because we really, really didn't have an alternative. So that's why the analytics report um, was so important and also was supported with so much detail that um, it's really irrefutable. And Google really didn't address any of it. They just kind of said a bunch of true statements that were completely irrelevant to the research, right? So I think if, if there's any message um, from this, it's that the advertisers and or the media agency should really go read the research and just look at some of the screenshots because it's very obvious once you see those and really take more aggressive action. For example, turn off GBP. So that helps you avoid most of the problems. Yeah. And, you know, I, I definitely think you really hit, hit the nail on the head there of, uh, um, you know, why it's been so difficult to identify this before, because IAS and Double Verify are the de facto standards at so many, you know, so many holding groups as to kind of, you know, grade, uh, you know, grade quality of, of, of inventory. Um uh, you know, and, and we'll we'll get into this, you know, a, a little bit. But um, could you just elaborate a little bit on kind of again that that you know relatively technical detail of like, hey, you know, IAS and Double Verify haven't been looking at this with JavaScript tags. Um, I know, like I say, a lot of you know both both of of our colleagues, my colleagues at, at holding groups, but also kind of more for brand side advertisers. So many think well, hey, I have brand safety and verification providers that, you know, check that my ads have been served and, and do all these things. And maybe, again, don't understand some of the, the technical specifics as to how that actually works. And so, so many people I know were were shocked when this came out, um, again, because they thought they had solutions, um, you know, in, in place to deal with this, which really, you know, hasn't been the case. Uh, and then they've kind of struggled a little bit of, well, do I need to go to Google to request, like, refunds on inventory? Do I need to look at, like, should I even be paying you know, the, you know, the one cent CPM edition for, you know, IIS and double verify. Could you just, yeah, I, I, you know, unpack a little bit, yeah, some of those problems identifying that inventory with those, those vendors? Sure. I'll, I'll give you a couple of examples. Let, let me start by saying if, you know, if an advertiser is using double verify, for example, um, the number that's typically reported uh, in their dashboard and in the Excel spreadsheets is what they call monitored ads. That's different than what is labeled measured impressions. Okay, so monitored ads is basically the total count of all the impressions. Uh, measured means they measured it with a JavaScript tag. And I'll get to why the JavaScript tag is so important in a second. But uh, if you're using Double Verify right now, you have to manually go into the Double Verify dashboard and pull a report yourself where you check both checkboxes, monitored impressions and measured ads because typically they only report to you the monitored uh, impression, uh, monitored ads, okay? If they didn't measure uh, the ad with a JavaScript tag, that means they didn't collect any JavaScript parameters to use to detect or determine whether it was loaded through fraudulent means. For example, a bot or a page redirect or pixel stuffing and things like that, okay? So if you don't load the JavaScript tag, you can't tell anything. Right. So that's essentially like not measuring it at all. So when you compare those two columns in the double verify report, uh, very often you'll see, I'm just going to use round numbers, 
measured ads is about one in 10 compared to monitored impressions. So in that case, that tells you that Double Verify only ran their JavaScript tag in one out of 10 ads. That means the flip side, nine in 10 were not measured. Now that becomes problematic when they're assuming that the other not, there's no fraud in the other nine and 10. I don't think that's a good assumption, right? Because we're going up against bad guys, fraudsters, hackers who maintain these vast botnets. Um, it would not be a good assumption to, to say that what you did not measure does not have any fraud in it. Okay, so that's one of the reasons they're reporting such low amounts of fraud, right? We consistently see about 1%, right? Rounded to 1% uh, levels of fraud. And intuitively, our gut tells us we, we can sense it's more than that, right? It's got to be more than that, even though they keep telling us it's 1%. Okay, now let me get to the JavaScript tag uh, example. And I'm going to use something very simple uh, to illustrate. When you have a bid request, uh, you know, in real-time bidding, right, RTB and programmatic, um, when an ad slot or an ad opportunity comes up, you know, the ad slot will send out a call that's called a bid request, said, who wants to bid on me, right? And in that bid request, they'll specify the domain, the page, the user agents, whatever, whatever, right? Obviously, bad guys are going to lie, right? So if they have a fake website, they're not going to put their own website or domain in the bid request because if they do, they're not going to get any bids. So they're going to deliberately lie and say it's MarthaStewart.com or NewYorkTimes.com or whatever other publisher domain they want to because it's all declared. So if you don't run a JavaScript detection tag post-bid and detect which site or app the ad actually ended up on, the only information you have is what was declared in the bid request. And obviously, bad guys are going to lie, right? So when they spoof New York Times, when they spoof Martha Stewart or Food Network or whatever, whatever, all of that gets commingled, right? So the fake Martha Stewart stuff gets commingled with the real Martha Stewart stuff in the place report. So you can't tell apart uh, what's real and what's fake. You just get MarthaStewart.com and a quantity of impressions, right? It's just mixed in together. That's why they're failing to detect the fraud. Okay. They don't even see the fake websites in there because the fake websites lied about the domain and now they're kind of mixed in with everyone else. So when you run a JavaScript tag like my platform does, right? we have a tag that rides along with the ad impression. It is set to asynchronous, so it fires after the ad finishes rendering on screen. Once it renders on screen, the JavaScript fires and we ask the browser to tell us what site, what page is it on, and then various other JavaScript parameters, right? So you have to collect that data in order to know whether the uh, site lied to us, right? Whether the fraudster lied to us. If you don't collect that with a JavaScript tag, you don't have the necessary data to do fraud detection at all, okay? So that's why the, these legacy vendors um, sampling, right? Uh, measuring only one in 10 becomes problematic. They didn't measure the other nine in 10, and if they didn't run the JavaScript tag, they don't have enough data to, to um, do reliable fraud detection. And the trade associations like Association of National Advertisers have cited these vendors' numbers over the last six years in annual press releases, right? So I almost don't even blame the ANA because that's all they could see, right? These vendors, they tell us it's 1%, so it's got to be 1%. 
right? I've tried desperately to tell the ANA it's way more than that. And I can show you data, but they refuse to look. Okay, so that's a that's a whole different issue. But hopefully that explains why you know these uh, legacy fraud detection vendors have missed a lot of the fraud, uh, and you know now outside researchers like analytics could actually document that there's a lot more fraud or misrepresented inventory going on than uh, were found by these uh, legacy vendors. Yeah, that's that's so helpful. And thank you. Because um, I, I know that, you know, again, coming from the perception, uh, you know, of, of brands or advertisers or people even, you know, like me who are not, you know, day in and day out in, in programmatic buying, um, you know, I think even just the branding of Google, you know, on top of, yeah, saying, well, we have double verify IIS for these types of things, you know, that brand association of, well, it's Google, it's trusted inventory, like it's TrueView, again, can sort of cover for some of those things where it's like, actually, again, Google is just as as subject to, um, you know, bad faith actors, like I say, within their bid requests, and they just don't exercise control. It's to your point, it's not necessarily um, a malicious or, or intentional thing. It's just that, again, they suffer from the nature of the ecosystem uh, and require, like I say, a little bit more of that of that scrutiny to understand really what's going on. Yeah, I, I you know, will share another example. I don't even really blame Google. Uh, they, they should take some of the blame, but let me illustrate something. I believe that Google will do the right thing when outsiders show them concrete data that there's fraud. So I don't know if you remember, there's a series of articles by Craig Silverman, the BuzzFeed News investigative reporter. You know, one example was he found 600 uh, mobile apps that were committing outright fraud, right? So alarm clock apps, keyboard apps, whatever, just loading thousands and thousands of ads in the background when the app wasn't even being used. So when he showed that kind of data to Google, Google did the right thing and kicked all 600 out, right? Some people will say, oh, well, why didn't they kick them out beforehand and all that kind of stuff, right? Google can see all this stuff. They should have done a better job kicking them out. So I think my take on it is that Google will do the right thing when presented with the right evidence. Uh, but I think they also can be more aggressive in rooting this out because they let them into the Play Store to begin with and they're committing outright fraud, you should be able to see that in the data. Like this alarm clock app is loading ads 24 seven. Most people don't use an alarm clock app continuously, you know, throughout the day. They use it for a few minutes in the morning and a few minutes uh, before they go to bed to set the alarm. So simple things like that uh, are still missed because everyone, I guess, was caught up in the euphoria of, oh, let's go buy billions and billions of ads using this advanced technology called RTB and programmatic algorithms and all that kind of stuff. But I think right now people are becoming more realistic and more practical when budgets are getting tighter. So I do anticipate, I hope that more advertisers ask harder questions and don't just be accepting of Google grading their own homework because Google can make mistakes, right? And these other you know, verification vendors are kind of covering up for that because they're just reporting on the data that's given to them by Google. They didn't actually measure anything themselves. Yeah, and and I know I know we've seen um, you know the folks over at the Check My Ads Institute again also have some success again you know raising these types of things with Google about you know publishers not being upfront with their kind of domain registration information and all those types of things. Um, but yeah, like I say, it really is incumbent upon advertisers to really take more of an interest on these things, which again I think is a great segue into kind of you know our next session again about how we we should deal with this with this problem. Um, you know, the first one is, you know, kind of, and again, I think this is a, a nice, uh, a good, a good question for you. What alternatives do we have besides IAS and Double Verify, you know, for, for these, these types of verification? Um, basically none at all. 
Your alternative is common sense and actually looking at the damn data. Okay. So a lot of advertisers have done digital marketing kind of like a, a video game, right? Set it and forget it. And, uh, and in, in doing so, they're also looking at, um, you know, what I call vanity metrics, like clicks and numbers of impressions. And it's kind of like, okay, we can kind of understand that here in North America, like bigger numbers, right? Higher scores win. So they'll say, oh, we bought, you know, 10, mil- 10 billion impressions and next quarter we bought 12 billion. So it was better than the previous one. And we got so many more clicks, right? So the, those metrics are easy to measure. And they're easy to report up the chain to their bosses. So unfortunately, those have become the metrics uh, that are used as KPIs for digital campaigns. However, uh, most advertisers probably don't realize that those are also trivial for the bots to manipulate, right? So whether it's the numbers of impressions or the numbers of clicks, right? The bots that are uh, creating those fake ad impressions, right? By loading the web pages repeatedly or by continuously playing the the mobile app. Um, they're also the ones that click on the ads. So they're gaming both metrics, right? The numbers of ads and the, and the clicks. And in doing so, uh, if the advertisers are kind of a, a sit back and let their agency buy it, or, you know, just looking at these reports that they're handed at the end of the month, they won't really know, uh, the problems, right? I'll give you one very specific example, very simple one to understand. If you have hourly reporting, and you can see that, oh, well, why is 40 to 60% of my ads used up between midnight and 2 a.m.? And then there's nothing left to serve during waking hours when humans are actually awake and going online and using mobile apps. If they just had that kind of detail, right, hourly detail instead of monthly reports, they could see something was wrong. So it takes a combination of the advertiser or the marketer, right, who's spending the money, being willing to look at more analytics, look more closely, and then they can tell something's wrong, right? So I'm using an example that's deliberately not about fraud. There's some things that are suboptimal, right? Uh, ads running in the overnight hours, that's suboptimal. Uh, showing 300 ads per person, that's overfrequency, that's suboptimal, right? So all of these things can still be corrected. And what I said earlier, uh, what's the alternative to IS and Double Verify? It's nothing at all. Right. I can talk about my platform, but I'm not going to talk about Foo Analytics. I'm just going to say you can use common sense and do things like start with an inclusion list as opposed to a block list. When you start with an inclusion list and you put real publishers' domains in there, you would have avoided 90% of the fraud and 90% of the fake sites and fake apps to a point where you don't need fraud verification vendors. Right? You don't need to pay extra for that. You know, Not to mention they didn't do a good job anyway. Okay, so... That's one thing. Another thing would be to uh, simplify your supply chains. So you don't need 39 exchanges in your media buy. You can go in there and uncheck 38 of the checkboxes or maybe 37 and just leave two exchanges, Google plus one other. Okay, That's going to get you most of the inventory that you want to buy anyway. So in doing so, you've avoided all the leakage that would happen when you have 39 exchanges, all you know, duplicating the bid request, you know, cross-selling, um, you know, reselling, all that kind of stuff, right? So again, if you do that, you're going to avoid most of the leakage, most of the problems, most of the domain spoofing, and to a point where you won't need fraud detection, okay? You won't need these legacy vendors. So those are just two very simplistic examples to illustrate that if the advertisers just put in a little more effort, 
looked at the reports and used some common sense to tell ESA, this doesn't look right. Um, they could solve most of it and not have to pay extra for fraud verification. Yeah, like I say, I, I definitely agree with that point of that, hey, this kind of set it and forget it and just, you know, like letting these things run is going to have to go away. But I think it's tough right now, given, you know, some of the direction that, you know, and, and certainly this isn't just limited to Google. You know, Meta is taking a lot of steps in this direction to to take away some of the the control factors that actual buyers like have when setting up their media buys. Um, you know, in, in kind of our brief, we've talked a little bit about performance max campaigns. But again, you know, Meta is going this direction as well with Advantage Plus. Even their, you know, default campaign setups now include Facebook Audience Network, which is just is just is just garbage. We just we know it is right there. I've never seen anything good come out of it. Um, and so, um, you know, again, you know, now we do have some controls for these things. Again, there are things that we can do and kind of set up to avoid this. But are there, I guess, like other, like, you know, other trends, other, you know, um, you know, pushes that some of the platforms are making again to take away some of this control that you're particularly wary of um, or kind of, you know, any other, you know, advice about how we should, you know, be looking to structure our buys, flags to look out for as we're thinking about, again, these types of blended inventory sources across across platforms? Very simply, if you're not willing to put in the work, uh, you shouldn't be a marketer. Okay, You shouldn't be a digital marketer. I'm going to put it plainly. Okay, if you're not willing to put in the work and you're not willing to learn about this stuff, um, if you're just going to do set it or forget it or let your media agency spend your $100 million budget for you, uh, you shouldn't uh, be a marketer. You don't deserve to be called a digital marketer. Okay, So when we talk about Pmax and um, you know the Facebook equivalent uh, advantage, those are all you know the algorithms uh, spending your money. If you don't have any kind of control, if you don't have any kind of um, independent measurement to see how they're spending your money or where your ads are even going, or if your ads even ran, okay, you should not be buying that. And okay, so, first of all, you need to put in the effort as a marketer. Okay, you can't just set it and forget it or let someone else spend your money. Second of all, you shouldn't let uh, the platform's black box algorithm spend your money, right? Pmax is that. So a lot of the stuff goes on the audience network and, you know, partner sites and all that kind of stuff because those generate large volumes. So when I ran my own campaign, 90% of the volume was eaten up by the outside stuff, right? Humans Google things. So if you limit your ads to run just on the main property, google.com, you'll probably do just fine. Those ads actually work because they show up when the person is looking for something and that's the ideal time to put an ad in front of them, right? So search ads, paid search ads that run on google.com work really, really well. Um, but most advertisers are just addicted to the large quantities, large volumes that are now generated by the audience networks, the sites outside of the main properties. Similarly on, on YouTube, the very simple solution is to eliminate GVP, Google Video Partners, and keep your ads on YouTube because those actually conform to the definition of TrueView. And in that case, you don't need any verification partners because humans watch YouTube. They spend hours and hours watching. And so when you have the ads run before they watch uh, the video, you're getting what you actually paid for, right? So I think a lot of these solutions are free to the advertiser. Like I said uh, earlier, use an inclusion list, build your own, right? Or um, uncheck 37 of the 39 exchanges, right? That's all free. You can do that yourself. But nobody wants the advertisers to know that because that means they can't make money off of it, right? The agencies don't want the advertisers to know that, that there's a free solution. 
all these ad tech vendors trying to sell verification services don't want the advertisers to know that because they're trying to sell them verification services. Okay, so again, it has to come back to the advertiser whose budget it is that's being wasted, right? They have to be good stewards of their own budget. If they're not going to put in the work and they're not going to uh, actually look at the, the data um, and, and use common sense, they should not be doing digital marketing. And so I think a lot of this is there's free solutions. You don't need to pay vendors. Um, you just need to look more closely. Yeah, I, I I really love that point of view. I'm also think that's definitely going to be our lead in clip for uh, for the show. That's a really that's a great perspective. Because um, I also think that, you know, to your point, like I said, there's so many entrenched interests and and various actors, again, that are pushing for these types of things of, oh, you know, you need to spend on performance max because we need more reach for these types of things. But I, I and I don't know, this is maybe, you know, just me. I, uh, I paradoxically now feel that the biggest opportunity for, again, you know, potentially some of the independents is actually to convince advertisers to spend less, right? Like, yeah, you d- you don't need to be buying all this crap. You essentially just need to be doing, to your point, paying attention, doing incrementality testing on your inventory sources to see what's actually getting you, you know, more things. Um, and, you know, again, you know, maybe that leads to, you know, advertiser inflation of those highly, highly desirable kind of placements that we see now, but they're kind of already expensive. Um, but I mean, have, have you seen any any clients, advertisers or again, any folks getting traction with the again, you know, the the maturity of the digital ecosystem now, again, I think has moved away from, you know, there was a while where it was like you need to you need to be investing more and more in digital and now, yeah, I think that I think the time is going to be like, actually like let's take a step back and spend less and only do it in the things that are that are valuable for us. Yeah. And unfortunately, it took an outside act of God. It's literally the pandemic to wake people up and you know say, okay, well, we got to do something differently. I can tell you, it's been a very difficult last ten years to put food on the table, right? Doing what I do, uh, and that's because everyone was caught up in the euphoria of let's spend more, let's buy more, right? Let's get more clicks. And no one wants to be the first to rock the boat, right? Who would think, like, if you're a marketer and you were given $60 million budget or $100 million budget, you're not going to all of a sudden say, oh, well, I'm going to go look into that a little bit more, right? And, and say, let me see if there's more fraud than the 1%. You're, you're going to just say, oh, hey, look, they said it's 1% fraud, so everything's fine. Let me keep spending. And I've come across many marketers where, you know, even if we found the fraud and said, you can get millions of dollars back. They don't want the money back because their job is to spend it all, right? And they will, they want more budget or at least the same budget next year. So again, those are like the perverse incentives or the misaligned incentives that you talked about. So I think right now, the best way to save money is to actually not spend it in the first place rather than try to get cheaper CPMs. Because by the way, CPM prices, CPMs are prices, not cost. Right. So everyone, there's a misnomer saying cost efficiency. As long as you keep using that word, you're going to be misled by the media agencies. CPM is a price, right? That's a unit price. How much you pay for a thousand impressions, right? I'm going to use a very simple math equation to illustrate. 10 years ago, big advertisers were buying media from legitimate publishers, New York Times, Hearst, um, you know, Meredith, you know, these real publishers, right? Gannett for $30 CPMs. Those are prices. Okay. Now they're paying $3 CPM prices, but buying 10 times the quantity. So when you take $3 times 10, you're still spending $30. You're not saving any cost. Okay. 
So when you talk about CPM, when it goes from $30 CPMs 10 years ago to now $3 CPMs, you did not save any cost, okay? Because you're still spending, you're buying 10 times the quantity, so you're still spending $30. So I think, you know, people right now, they're so used to seeing the $3 that when we talk, they think that's rational. They think that's real, right? That's all been driven by bot activity because no legitimate publisher can afford to sell ads for that cheap because they have to produce the content. So $30 looks absurd, right? It looks way too high, but that's actually what it's supposed to be because that's what it was 10 years ago. So I've also said that, you know, the last 10 years has been the lost decade of digital marketing because in 2013, about 10 years ago, or exactly 10 years ago, that's when programmatic media buying became the dominant form of media buying. And because of that, when advertisers stopped buying the majority of the media from real publishers and they started putting the money into programmatic exchanges, they lost sight of where the ads are actually going. And because of the exchanges, because now we have hundreds of thousands of sites and apps in those exchanges, nobody has the time to check all of them, right? And so that became the giant loophole that let all the fraudsters in. Because it's trivial to set up 10,000 websites using WordPress templates, okay? So the scale with which the fraud proliferated after people started buying through exchanges, it shot up in the last 10 years. And I have a chart for that, right? Stuff was moving along nicely, but then um, you know, the ad spending just sh uh, shot up like a hockey stick, right? So a lot of, you know, every party, uh, all the ad tech companies love that because they could now justify the hockey stick uh, project revenue projection charts that they had in their PowerPoints. They said, oh, yay, we got that. So even if they didn't make the bots themselves, they certainly benefited from it. So like you said, there's so many parties in the ecosystem that benefit from it. They're not going to be the one to rock the boat. And that's why it took an external force, the pandemic, to say, oh, well, you know, everyone's boats already has been rocked. So now we got to you know, take a closer look because we can't spend money as freely as we did before the pandemic. So I think you know, I've seen an uptick in, in my business where advertisers are asking me for help to audit campaigns where they already had a gut feeling something was not right here, but they just couldn't put their finger on it because the fraud verification vendors they use kept telling them everything was fine. It's 1%. Okay, so now they're looking more closely. They're getting more detailed analytics and they're fixing basic things like wasting a lot of ad impressions in the overnight hours or showing 5,000 ads per person per day, right? Over frequency. But basic, basic things uh, still need to be fixed. And that requires the vigilance of the marketer spending the money because no one else in the ecosystem is going to do that for them. When my co-founders and I were at Can, I said that if we really just wanted yacht money, all I had to do was go spin up an ad fraud network, and we could 100 percent have have yacht money. If we if we you can buy your own yacht. Yeah, if we decided that we just didn't have ethics one day, we could have yacht money next year. It wouldn't even be it wouldn't even be that hard. We could totally do that. I'm smart enough to do that. Yeah, we didn't. Remember Megan Graham? Megan Graham actually ran that experiment. So in 2020, she put up a, a new site called Tribune Times Today or Tribune Today or whatever. And she plagiarized her own articles just to prove a point, right? Because she was seeing a bunch of these sites literally just plagiarize her CNBC articles. So she did the same. She set up the site. Within a week, she got accepted into seven of eight exchanges and she started running ads. Okay. Do you, do you remember which one exchange didn't let her in? Oh, no, I don't remember. I don't remember. It was Google. 
because Google actually scanned the websites and said, all of this is duplicate content. We're not going to let you in, right? But seven of the eight let her in to start running ads. So where the heck were the checks and balances? So that's another example of where you can't rely on them to do the right thing for you, right? You, the marketer, have to do it yourself. If you're not willing to put in the work, you shouldn't be a digital marketer. Agreed. Yeah, yeah. You shouldn't be a digital marketer. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, you know, t- you know, just to kind of, you know, wrap things up a little bit, you know, one of the things that I, I really liked, you know, to your point of like, hey, it really required this external act of God of the pandemic to kind of introduce some sanity into some of these conversations. And I'll say that, you know, one of the other major serious external, not acts of God, but acts of man that we're dealing with is definitely, you know, climate change. And I know we've talked about this a little bit of, again, kind of one of the new things in in ad tech and kind of ad exchanges is, you know, is, is carbon credits, you know, a few other things that are going on. Um, but I guess kind of my, you know, hopeful, optimistic, wishful thinking view of the future is these types of exchanges and the data transference that go on are huge sucks of carbon and electricity that just aren't necessary. They aren't creating any value and are huge contributors, again, to the carbon footprint of most marketers and ad campaigns. You know, I definitely hope for a future where, you know, some kind of, you know, speed limit is put into place of we have, you know, carbon caps on on some of our campaigns and, and a couple other things. Um, but I guess, you know, you know, I, I'd love to just kind of hear your thoughts on that. Again, I, I'm sure it's a similar answer of, you know, as as we also start to think about, um, you know, marketing spend and inventory placements from the perspective of other, you know, finite resources that they require, you know, just like budget is a constraint soon, carbon hopefully will be a constraint on these types of things. I guess any thoughts on, again, like the sustainability or marketers who are looking to kind of improve, yeah, you know, the the resource allocations of their campaigns in this direction? Um, any thoughts on this? Yeah, it's total bullshit. Kind of an odd question I phrased, but. Yeah, it's total bullshit. The reason I say that is, let me be clear. The concept of uh, reducing carbon emissions from your programmatic media buying, I'm glad that was brought up. I'm glad that's become part of the conversation. Paying vendors to do that for you is total waste of money. Okay, so it's similar to the supply path optimization, the SPO stuff from a few years ago. You can solve your supply path complexity by simply unchecking 37 of the 39 exchanges from your media buy. That takes maybe one minute if you're slow at unchecking checkboxes. Okay, so a lot of this stuff, again, can be solved for free. You do not need to pay any other vendors to do carbon reduction for you, to do SPO, you know, supply path optimization for you, to eliminate MFA sites for you. If you went to an inclusion list, you'd avoid that problem entirely. You don't need to pay more vendors to solve a problem that you could avoid in the first place. Okay. That's been the problem for the last 10 years. Okay. Ad fraud and other suboptimal things is not a tech problem. It's an incentives problem, right? So again, you're, you're not going to solve any of it by paying more vendors to do it for you. Because first of all, their tech sucks, doesn't work that well. And you could have avoided the problems to begin with if you actually looked at the data, right? So this carbon thing is, is very similar, right? If you think about real-time bidding, there's absolutely no need to bid out every single impression to say, this ad opportunity came up and said, who wants to bid on me? And then you have 100 different advertisers trying to bid on that. You know, and all of that data has to go out to, you know, 37 exchanges, 39 exchanges. And then each of those exchanges has 100 advertisers who have to look at that data to decide whether they want to bid on that or not. So all of that is completely unnecessary computing power. And all of that is completely unnecessary bandwidth. 
right? So you can reduce and solve all of that by unchecking 37 of the 39 exchanges and by using an inclusion list that doesn't have MFA sites in it, right? Include the publisher sites like New York Times, Wall Street Journal, all the Hearst publications, all the Meredith publications, all the Gannett publications of magazines and newspapers that you've heard of. Because if you haven't heard of it, most other humans have not heard of it either. So you're not going to get at scale human audiences visiting websites or using mobile apps that they never heard of. So the whole long tail is a complete Silicon Valley myth that has been foisted on a whole bunch of unsuspecting advertisers for the last decade. So now we need to unwind all of that. So yes, it's going to be painful. Yes, it's going to look strange. Like CPM prices are going to be look like it's 10 times higher than it is now. The quantities of ad impression that you can buy that are legitimate is going to be 1% of what you're buying right now. It's you know 99% less than what you're buying right now. So it's going to be very difficult to accept if that's the worldview that you grew up with. Right, so some of these marketers have been alive less than I've done digital marketing. Right, I've been doing it for 30 years. A lot of these marketers spending millions of dollars have not been alive uh, for longer than I've been doing digital marketing. So I think it's really time to open the eyes, open your eyes and look more carefully at the data because you know you can apply some common sense and solve most of these things and actually help prevent climate change. Yeah, I was saying it's always been crazy to me that it's like, oh, well, we're going to add like these additional, like we're going to buy offsets and carbon credits and do additional, and just do, do less, fam. Do less, as the as the kids as the kids say. Yeah, yeah. yeah spend less. Spend less. Because there's, you know, like for, for some of the largest CPG companies, when they say, oh, we have a $2 billion digital budget, there's not enough real stuff for you to actually buy and spend it all. That's been the problem. They've had way, way too much money to spend. And so I contrast the, the biggest of advertisers to small and medium enterprises, SMEs, small businesses, if they spend $1,000 and they don't get more sales, more outcomes, they can't afford to spend the next $1,000. So small business owners end up being less at risk of fraud if they're careful with their money and they're closely looking at the right analytics, which is, did they get any business out of it? Right. So as I have run campaigns myself, I turn off campaigns very quickly if they're not performing because I'm spending my own money. And if it's not working, I cut it. And then I look for some other way of you know doing the digital marketing. And the big advertisers are simply not doing that because they're just giving their money to their agency to spend for them. Yeah, but like I'm with you. I'm I'm ready to go back to the days of uh, negotiated forty five dollar CPMs uh, for for television placements, and also I want those Mad Men old school lunches because I didn't get to experience that in my career. <laughs> That's right. I like those too. Um, Doctor Fu, this has been amazing. Thank you so much um, for the conversation. I, I certainly hope we'll have you back um, as as uh, you know all, as all this kind of shapes up and the, and the, you know the industry continues on. Um, but that wraps us up for today. So thank you guys so much. Uh, this has been Scratch. Scratch is a production of Rival. We are a marketing innovation consultancy that helps businesses develop strategies and capabilities to grow faster. If you want to learn more about us, check out wearerival.com. If you want to connect with me, email me at eric at wearerival.com or find me on LinkedIn. If you enjoyed today's show, please subscribe, share with anyone you think might enjoy it, and please do leave us a review. Thanks for listening and see you next week.